Section 25 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle, The Medici, Volume 1, by G.F. Young. Among the charges which, at a later age, found to make against Lorenzo that of profligacy and of corrupting the Florentines, gives most evidence of the virulent partisan spirit which has been mentioned, owing to the entire want of ground for the accusation. So far as his private character is concerned, no facts have been brought forward to support the charge. Judged by the standard of his day, he was not an immoral man. His conduct in respect was superior to that of contemporary sovereigns, our own in England not excepted. It is also noticeable that no illegitimate children are ascribed to him, almost a unique instance in that age. But it is in his public capacity that the charge is chiefly made alleging that he debased the popular taste by the introduction of licentiousness into art and literature, an accusation utterly without foundation, and leveled against one, most of whose poetry was of an elevating character. In support of this charge, his carnival songs are often cited, but here again the standard of the age must determine the point, and judged by that standard, the verdict will be conclusive. Nothing can be said against Lorenzo's poetry in this respect, which cannot be said with much greater force against, for instance, Shakespeare. Roscoe remarks, In the poem of Brandolini, the attention of Lorenzo to the dictates of morality is the particular subject of praise, and that by a contemporary writer. Had the conduct of Lorenzo been notoriously licentious, such praise would have been the severest satire. The accusation that the profligacy of the time among the Florentines is to be laid on Lorenzo's shoulders receives strong contradiction from the contemporary records of Milan, Venice, Ferrara, Mantua, and many other capital cities of Italy, since we find there, at this period, exactly the same state of things, and the same tendency to sensuous amusements and licentiousness replacing a severer style of life. It was a general result of the bursting forth of the Renaissance, and had no special manifestation in Florence. In fact, rather the reverse. Lorenzo, as regarded his own private life, was better than his time, while the idea that a ruler should endeavor to elevate his people was one which did not dawn on Europe till many generations later, and it is not likely that it ever crossed his mind. By other writers, again, this corruption of the Florentines is declared to consist in a deterioration from their former strength of character, and the charge which these writers make against Lorenzo is that of having exercised an enfeebling influence. But we do not find this supposed enfeeblement borne out by the history of the time, or find that the Florentines at the end of Lorenzo's rule any feebler in character than at its commencement. The Florence, which in 1494 did not quail before the threats of a Charles VIII, showed itself no less strong than that which in 1478 braved the wrath of Sixtus IV. It was another kind of enfeeblement of which, after the exile of the Medici, the Florentines had to complain, that due to their own faction fighting, and not to any action on the part of Lorenzo. Another charge which shows no less animus is that which asserts that Lorenzo enriched himself at the expense of the public funds. 
Various circumstances afforded opportunity for this charge. Not only was Lorenzo expected to provide royal hospitality in the Medici Palace to distinguished visitors to Florence, expenditure which was seldom refunded to him by the state, but also he frequently had to advance from the Medici Bank the war expenses of the state, and this was sometimes refunded to him and sometimes not. He had also, in the conduct of foreign affairs, constantly to disperse large sums as secret subsidies to foreign states. These sums were either advanced or reimbursed to him by the state, but the secret nature of their expenditure naturally left it open to anyone to suggest that he spent the money on himself. Those to whom every act of the Medici has an evil aspect have not failed to take advantage of such an opportunity. While it seems forgotten that secret service money is a regular item of expenditure of every modern government and is necessarily never accounted for by the high official to whom its expenditure is entrusted. Hence we find these transactions called peculation and embezzlement on Lorenzo's part. Such a charge made against one who had spent his private funds on the public behalf to so large an extent that even the immense fortune left him by his father was severely reduced thereby gives us a measure of the length to which the partisan spirit against the Medici can go. At a meeting held three days after Lorenzo's funeral, the Signoria officially placed it on record that he always subordinated his own interest to the advantage and benefit of the community shrank neither from trouble nor danger for the good of the state and its freedom, and devoted to that object all his thoughts and powers, securing public order by excellent laws. Are we then, on the one hand, to hold this as the correct view of Lorenzo's character and conduct, and that Hallam, Burkhart, and Gregorovius are right? Or, on the other hand, was Lorenzo a usurper, who aimed only at his own interest and embezzled the public money? one in whom the enslavement of Florence was the hard work of his manhood, and one who, for this end, deliberately led the Florentines into profligacy, as alleged by Sisamondi, Perrin, Simmons, Villari, and Trollope. Examining the conflicting evidence, and more particularly the facts of Lorenzo's life, admitted by all, it would appear that the charge of being a usurper cannot be maintained, especially in the face of the high authority of Hallam. That the charge of having enslaved or made himself a tyrant over Florence is utterly irreconcilable with the fact that he had no military force, and that his power rested solely on the will of the people. That the charge of embezzlement is, for the reasons already given, one which only prejudice can assert. And that the charge of profligacy, of debasing the public taste by introducing licentiousness into art and letters, is without an atom of foundation. But, after all, the best evidence as to which side in this controversy is right is furnished by the people of Florence themselves, those who lived under Lorenzo's rule, and who, if his actions were such as his detractors have asserted, had to bear the results of them. Did the Florentines as a whole, during his lifetime, regard Lorenzo with pride and approbation, and sorrow for his death as a national loss? Or did they look upon that death as a joyful release to them from the tyranny of a usurper who embezzled the monies of the state and enriched himself at their expense? It is incontestable that the former, and not the latter, was the view they held, and the evidence which such a fact supplies is absolutely conclusive upon the whole matter. 
Lorenzo's funeral was, in accordance with his own instructions, an unostentatious one. He was buried, like his great-grandfather and father, in the old sacristy in San Lorenzo, in the same tomb with his brother Giuliano. From thence, however, his and Giuliano's remains were, 67 years afterwards, removed to the new sacristy, which had by that time been added to the church. Lorenzo and Giuliano lie buried under the end wall of this sacristy, that opposite to the altar. It is, however, strange to record that no monument marks the grave of the great Lorenzo the Magnificent, while we see that the absence of such a monument actually in course of time caused a doubt as to where he was buried. Michelangelo was to have executed a monument for his tomb, but left Florence without doing so, and so matters have remained ever since. Probably this is chiefly because none have since liked to propose the erection of a monument, which by its situation would challenge comparison with the only two other tombs in the chapel, the masterpieces of Michelangelo. No doubt the difficulty is a considerable one. At the same time, it seems, from a national point of view, a great pity that it should not work such a result. If one may venture to suggest, possibly the difficulty might be met by placing on the wall over the tomb a large black marble slab, perfectly plain, with simply the name Lorenzo il Magnifico on it, and the year of birth and death, without any other words. It would rely for impressiveness solely on its size, massiveness, and absolute plainness. Such a monument would avoid all clashing with Michelangelo's masterpieces, while it would be in accord with Lorenzo's own sentiments, shown in the instructions as to his funeral, as well as with the spirit of those earlier generations of the Medici, to which these two brothers belonged. Mr. Armstrong's words on the absence of any monument in Florence to Lorenzo the Magnificent are as follows. Florence has not repaid the generous recognition to Lorenzo, which he himself gave to others. With or without her wish, the fame of the Medici will forever be linked with hers. In Lorenzo's own words, the house goes with the state. After 400 years, she might well lay the ghost, if such there be, of political antipathy to honor with a fitting monument the most national, the most gifted representative of that many-sided culture for which the city of the Arno is still famous. Several important events in the history of Europe took place in the same year as the death of Lorenzo the Magnificent. Spain. The consolidation of Spain begun in 1469 by the marriage of Ferdinand, king of Aragon, with Isabella, queen of Castile, was in 1492 completed. Ferdinand and Isabella, joint sovereigns, after having between the years 1474 and 1481 created peace and order in their previously troubled dominion, resumed in the latter year the war against the Moors. Their arms met with a wonderful succession of victories, and at length, in 1492, after 11 years of war, Granada, which had been the Moorish capital for 250 years, was taken. The Mohammedan power in Spain was ended, and they were driven out, after 800 years of occupation. In the same year, there also took place the discovery of America by Columbus, under the auspices of Ferdinand and Isabella, which added still further to the glory of their reign and to the power of Spain. The year 1492 was truly a great one for Spain. Rome. 
In the same year, two months after the death of Lorenzo the Magnificent, Pope Innocent VIII also died. He was succeeded by the notorious Spaniard, Rodrigo Borgia, Alexander VI. This caused Giovanni de' Medici to return to Florence, he being one of the cardinals who had voted against Rodrigo Borgia's election, and all these having to fly from Rome. France in this year, Charles VIII, having attained the age of 22, took over the government of the kingdom from his capable sister, and began to form projects which were, ere long, to issue in an invasion of Italy, destined to usher in a new era in international politics. End of section 25